0: Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser.
1: And I'm your host, Maria Svetkova. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at BYOND underscore headlines.
0: Low voter turnout has plagued Canada's elections for decades, and people are increasingly apathetic towards the democratic process. In this episode, we host a discussion to ask whether Canada has a democratic deficit. Are democratic institutions accurately representing the will of the people? And are they providing goods and services that people value and want? This goes beyond the trend of voter turnout to consider a wide range of democratic institutions, such as party financing, lobbying, the welfare state, the electoral system, and much more.
1: In our first segment, Dr. Brian Evans from Toronto Metropolitan University is going to join us to discuss the role of democratic institutions in understanding chronic low voter turnout. He'll touch on the roles that these institutions play in determining social outcomes, the welfare state, the influence of corporate lobbying and its effects on public interest advocacy, the working class, and the legitimacy of democracy or democratic institutions and public perception, among others.
0: And our second guest, Mr. Rael Laverne, will join us around 11.30 a.m. Rael is past president of Fair Vote Canada, a national citizen's campaign for proportional representation. And our discussion will focus on the differences between first past the post and proportional representation, whether and how proportional representation changes democratic outcomes, and why Canada has never seen meaningful electoral reform despite 100 years of promises. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show.
1: Our first guest, Dr. Brian Evans, is a professor in the Depar- in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at TMU. Prior to his appointment to a faculty position, he was employed as a policy advisor and policy branch director in the Ontario government across a variety of organizations. Currently, his research interests are concerned with corporate lobbying, public interest advocacy, and democratization of the state. Today, we're sitting down with Brian to talk about democratic institutions and whether or not we can explain Disillusionment and apathy through these lens. Hello, and,
0: and Ryan should be on the line now. Can you hear us?
1: Hello, hello, Brian. Yep, I can hear you. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: All right, I'm just gonna go start you off with an easy one. Um, why is voter turnout declining in Canada? <laughs>
2: Okay, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's a big uh, question and not unique to Canada. Yeah, uh, it, It's a, a general phenomenon throughout all of the liberal democratic uh, countries to one degree or another. Uh, but but to begin to answer your question, we have to look in the rearview mirror and have a bit of a historical backdrop to mm-hmm. how did we get here? And, you know, if you go back to Uh, the Great Depression of the 1930s, World War II. We came out of that period in Canada, the United States, uh, uh, Western Europe, Australia, et cetera, with a lot of confidence, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of confidence in what government could do. Uh, In in many uh, cases, they had uh, guided their country through the Great Depression, uh, the New Deal in particular in the United States, uh, and then World War Two demonstrated in, in Canada that government could actually competently uh, lead the country through war and to victory together with allies, naturally. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that period, uh, a broad broad narrative was we are never going back to the Depression, we are tired of insecurity, and we've learned that government can provide a floor mm-hmm. and a degree of security which had hitherto before, not been known. And, and that period carried on for a good 30, 35 years. And, and if you, you think about uh, the, the development of the welfare state uh, everywhere, Canada was somewhat laggard in coming to that. Uh, but it, you know incrementally after 1945 and really taking off in the 1960s, mm-hmm. all kinds of programs that, that we take for granted, practically today, right. uh, emerged. You know, we think of Medicare, uh, educate public education, uh, post-secondary education, a whole slew of of uh, uh, social services, and and, and you know, the role of the state in in you know managing uh, uh, the economy, mad, mad, uh, managing particular outcomes, and and that gave people. A big interest in what government did and who mm-hmm. got into government and who did not get into government. And and then, as we all know, in the 1980s, well, actually in the 1970s, but really in the 1980s, that whole paradigm began to unravel. You know, we, we now call it the neoliberal era. I'm old enough to remember we didn't have that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew things were changing, the paradigm was changing. We didn't have any idea to water or, or for how long. Mm-hmm. But that was a period of, you know, the shrinking of the public sector, of privatization, and, and ongoing, uh, you know, uneven, but ongoing austerity in the public sector. Right. You know, the shrinking of public budgets, the shrinking of public expenditures relative to need. And together with that came tremendous economic change, uh, uh, the the growth of inequality, uh, mm-hmm. polarization uh, socially and economically, which is never good for uh, liberal democratic engagement. <laughs> Not at all. It, it creates a, a whole variety of uh, morbid symptoms, if we can call it that. And and then how the operations of, of, of the government began to change, you know, mm-hmm. the centralization of power uh, in the executive, the shrinking of the deliberative function of parliaments. where, you know, did anything actually really get debated or did people simply yell at each other? <laughs> and all the key decisions being made, you know, at, by the PM or the premier or whatever it may be. And then the third element I put into that would be, uh, and and, and the second half of the show will touch upon this, the homogenization of political parties, where They are intensely partisan. Mm -hmm. And yet the ideological differences between them have probably never really been smaller. And that's kind of like the long version of why do people not participate? Why do we have uh, declining voter outcomes? Increasingly, people don't see, uh, or a large part of the population don't see uh, uh, a
1: point to it. Yeah. It's interesting that you said... uh... Does anything even get re- debated, or do they just uh, yell at each other? And I think that touches on an important concept. To me, it seems like politics has kind of assumed a negative connotation uh, in, in the public's eye. Democracy, however, uh, sounds more positive. Do you think people uh, want democracy over politics?
2: Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, and, and maybe uh, looking at it in a rather kind of superficial way. Sure, but how do you have democracy without politics? It's, yeah, that's, uh, that's true. It, it, it's impossible to separate the two, right? Democracy, by definition, is about politics, and mm-hmm. politics is about uh, working through all of our differences, whether they're big or tremendously huge, uh, that you have in a uh, very differentiated, uneven, unequal society like we have in, in, in Canada. mm mm-hmm.
0: Okay, uh, Brian. I want to jump in here with uh, with a question, and I'm in a circle, kind of to the end of the questions that we had for you. But you you talked about um, inequality and how the, the the legitimacy of democracy has somewhat eroded over time, a- and growing there is growing inequality and unwillingness of uh, the state to address the the uh, you know the structural causes. So, what, in your opinion, um, why rather, in your opinion, have our democratic institutions been inadequate at Addressing this inequality that you see as kind of at the at the heart of people's discontent with the democratic process right now.
2: Yeah, well, it goes back to the kind of like historical backdrop I I drew out a, a minute ago, where you know you look at that period beginning in the nineteen eighties, the nineteen nineties. Now we call it you know the the neoliberal era, which we're in today, mm-hmm. and you have a, a fundamental. Strengthening through that period, including the day that we're in today, over the 40-year period, where particular economic interests in particular have have uh, effectively captured the key strategic locations of the state uh, central banks, departments of finance, uh, etc., and you have a together with that a diminishing of any kind of alternative perspective regarding economic policy, uh, economic development, you know, to make that a little bit concrete, uh, let's talk about public ownership, or maybe I should say we don't talk about public ownership anymore. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s, we had a very lively debate in Ontario, in Canada, about the role of of crown corporations in economic development and what kind of a role that they should play, or if you're from an alternative point of view, not play. But we had a debate. Uh, in the country a very public one and it's gone and we've gone through the financial crisis of 2008 where effectively many governments nationalized the financial sector and then and, and beyond that and then turned them quietly turned it all back over to private ownership we've gone through a pandemic which revealed all manner of inadequacy rate right, break right down to vaccine production mm-hmm. nationally uh to ppe not being available And again, what never really got raised in a serious manner would be to what degree could public ownership, in the Canadian case, Crown Corporations, fill that vacuum of vaccine research and development and production, of uh, personal protective equipment, etc., which we badly needed and had difficulty acquiring. Mm.
0: No, that that makes sense and I think it really gets back to the heart of what economics is all about which is alternatives and options opportunity costs right right Uh, we had a we had an interesting lecture by uh, Timothy Snyder from Yale at the monk school about mm, uh, two months ago and his lecture was just all about this alternatives and Mm -hmm. people capturing the narrative and basically saying there is no alternative to the present situation but like you say uh, it's really important to flesh out these alternatives, like uh, alternatives to private ownership of things that could be public assets like uh, CN Rail, Air Canada, Bell, which are all privatized. That, that, that,
2: that's exactly true. I mean, you look at telecom. yeah. telecoms. Telecoms should be a public utility. And why do I say should be? Look, we all need them. How do you function today without a computer, without Internet, without a a, a, a cell phone, etc.? Uh, these are are essential to daily life. And yet we have turned it all over to the private sector, uh, the for-profit private sector, often in the Canadian context, oligopoly, if not monopoly situations. And then we're left wondering, how do we make that all work again in the context of profound inequality, economic inequality, where increasingly large parts of the population simply do not have access
1: I'd like to uh, bring it back uh, to lobbying, actually, and I have my own opinions on this, but since your current research interests do center on corporate lobbying and public interest advocacy, how do we manage lobbying so that public trust in democracy is maintained? Is it able to be managed in that way at all?
2: Oh, definitely. Uh, Transparency would be the word. And the registries that we have at the federal level and and for a number, not all, but a number of of provinces, do not reveal enough information. Mm -hmm. And there are all manner of ways in which to not even have uh, 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 that bit of information registered on the public lobby, uh, public lobby registry. Mm -hmm. And... You know, for example, if you're invited by a cabinet minister or a government to come in and and have a chat about an issue, that never appears, Mm -hmm. right? That just doesn't appear. Uh, Prior to being uh, appointed to an academic position, I worked in government, the Ontario government, and we met all kinds of people. Uh, coming from different parts of, of, of industry or different uh, economic uh, uh, sectors mm-hmm. uh, to to talk about legislative regulatory reform one way or the other, depending on the government at the time. And none of that would ever be captured. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that the, the whole lobbying, there's nothing inherently wrong with lobbying. Yeah. Uh, it's always been there, will always be there in one fashion or another, but how it can be dealt with is much, much greater transparency and and capturing all of the different situations in which one can meet with important government, whether they're political or bureaucratic officials, who are in a position to make decisions, to shape outcomes. Uh, That would go a huge way forward. I mean, I don't want to belabor it too much, but, you know, the the, uh, uh, Ford family thousand dollar a ticket stag and go, if I'm getting that <laughs> correct you know I mean is, is that lobbying in the narrow definition no mm-hmm. did lobbying happen well you have to think unless one is horribly naive a few discussions happened yeah. which had to do with you know government decision-making
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, yeah on this on this topic of lobbying uh, Brian I'm I'm curious to know your opinion about the recent decision of the lobbying uh, commissioner, or their their proposal to reduce the length of time uh, from four years to two years before a high level political advisor can lobby their former candidate. Is this decision in the public interest, or is it a step backwards?
2: Well, it it, it all depends. I mean, bringing it up, there, there are other ways around that too, right? I mean, uh, the, the the four year uh, 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 prohibition. Uh, there are ways to get around that it 's not horribly difficult bringing it to two um, it it doesn't help uh, because in one key part of lobbying is the revolving door and by revolving door, I mean people who come from government, go into the private sector in one way or another, and may come back into government at another point in another another function and you know, It's well-documented in the, the academic literature studies of, of lobbying that it's primarily about who you know. Uh, it may not be that you have an incredibly uh, uh, expert knowledge on a particular file, and you might, but it's overwhelmingly driven by the ability to get a meeting, to have a call uh, return. Uh, and so by reducing that Period of time, no matter how problematic that 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 provision was and is, to two years, it only kind of fuels this sort of revolving door, who you know networking, which is at, at the heart of a uh, professional lobby.
0: And um, just to quickly circle back with with a question, you know, we we were talking about Canada's lobbying system and how there are all these. You know, there there seems to be a, a lack of transparency. But how do you see it comparing to to other countries like uh, our peers in the OECD? Like, does any of do any of them do it really well with respect to lobbying that we could take an example from?
2: Yeah, the Americans.
0: Really? Uh, interesting. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the,
2: the, the, the lobbying industry in the United States is absolutely huge. Um, and it, it's huge because, one, it's a huge budget. And an awful lot of it connected to defense procurement and production, an awful lot of it. Uh, so rather different from from Canada in whatever level you want to look at. Uh, but there's been, you know, many, many decades of, of opportunity in the United States to, to regulate lobbying better than what we do. And it may be, I don't know exactly, but it may be a function of the division of powers they, they have, which we do not have anything remotely like that. Uh, but also just the fact that uh, uh, the 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 scope of lobbying in that country is such that it caught the attention of of lawmakers and who then developed the means in order to capture uh, and 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 make more transparent, maybe not entirely transparent, uh, but more trans certainly more transparent than what we have in in Canada. I mean, our our federal lobbying registry is as good as it gets in Canada. And it's terribly inadequate. And and if that's the Canadian gold standard, then, you know, it's pretty bad.
1: (laughs) It's it's interesting you brought up the American system because I would love to talk about party financing. And I hope we can talk about it for just a few minutes. Um, I'm not too familiar with the uh, rules and regulations around party financing in the U.S. I think actually... There aren't any
0: kind of a free-for-all is it
1: a free-for-all but i know that but here in canada for example um there was uh quite a period of time where the government was providing financing to political parties until harper scrapped that in what year was that 2015 i think Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah any thoughts on that well i mean
2: again the canadian context is very different from the american and you're right compared to canada the american uh uh situation is, is practically a free for all. Right. <laughs> uh and all kinds of different ways in terms of political action committees and that kind of thing of bundling huge amounts of money, like mm-hmm. amounts of money that in Canada would, would you know, make your jaw drop, yeah. right? Uh compared to compared to here. Uh but you know, you mentioned the Cretean reforms, uh where every vote to a political party was worth an amount of money. I can't remember how much I think it, it was two dollars
1: a vote. Yeah, two dollars yeah, a like
2: vote. That. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that made it very transparent and actually very simple. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and you compare that to reforms that have been made in Ontario recently, which have increased the uh, value of individual donations, mm-hmm. I think, to up to $5,000. And, you know, that 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 means that a small number of people who contribute the maximum mm-hmm. can end up in the aggregate contributing a huge amount of money to one party yeah. so a small number of people contributing a large amount of money yeah uh whereas you know the criteria era reforms of you know two bucks a vote well it was pretty simple
1: yeah yeah because for example i mean um any third or fourth party here in canada is in my opinion a little bit disadvantaged because a they don't have as large of a member base as you know the, the two mainstream parties, but also because a lot of their member base is made up of people who aren't exactly wealthy um, in in the sense of the term.
2: No, no. And you have, again, you, you know, it'd be a great uh, uh, anthropology PhD dissertation uh, centered around voting and 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 uh, uh, donations that mm-hmm. one could do in terms of, you know, uh, networking and and how uh, uh, a small number of people can be given an mm-hmm. amount of money to then in turn donate. Yeah. You know, like every family member can be given an amount of money and then each family member can make a donation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so there are all kinds of ways to game that one compared to, you know, two bucks a boat, <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. which is pretty simple. 2 million votes, $4 million. There mm-hmm. you go. All paid for by, uh, uh, by by the state mm-hmm. and 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 very transparent as opposed to you know having thousand dollar a plate uh, dinners and 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 what have you
1: yeah yeah
0: so so Brian when we talk about financing for political parties like what is the can we talk about the role of government here like is there is there a clear clear case for for how this creates public value by providing a baseline support to uh, political parties, as opposed to just kind of a free for all system like how would we how would we justify uh or or counter the argument that the conservatives made when they they got rid of it
2: well it, it it comes down to what you want, and again we we began talking about you know politics and people who turn their nose up at politics, which if you're a living human being, you can't ignore it. I mean you may not like it, but you can't get away from it. you know we're all shaped by it and affected by it one way or another and and so you know, here, here's a situation where uh, if we have greater equity, maybe not equality, but equity between the financing of different political parties, the two mainstream or two large parties, again, and then a number of uh, uh, middle to small parties, NDP, Green, Bloc uh, in particular, who may not have uh, the, the kind of social network corporate networks that allow them to acquire large amounts of money very quickly uh, to fund a campaign. And if we think that uh, there's a connection between election outcomes or and, and, and financing, then we have to think, well, having huge disparities between the ability to finance a party and election campaign will lead to, you know, unequal, uh, maybe even unfair outcomes. Uh, may not, Uh, There have been studies done which show that the correlation between money and outcomes is actually kind of weak. But on the other hand, if the notion is just let's have a degree of fairness, uh, then then you can make a compelling argument that there should be a different way of uh, financing elections where uh, each party is maybe not, like I say, equal, but have more or less able to operate on the same playing field, more or less. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Germany, where, you know, they have a very uh, interesting model where each party will get a, a, a block of funding based on their popular vote. Mm-hmm. And, and that will include funding for a think tank. So each major political party, which is represented in the German parliament, they're provided a block of funding to have a think tank which has, yeah, I've, I've attended one in, in, in Berlin where they, uh, uh, hold conferences, uh, 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 bring in people from all over on a particular topic. Uh, they, 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 they publish, they publish, uh, uh a magazine, uh, uh, even having a publishing house, publishing books and research mm-hmm. reports and that kind of thing. So, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a very kind of deep form of, of, uh political engagement at that level. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then and then all of that helps to inform public opinion. Is it ideal? No, but nothing's ideal. But I think it provides something of a model that uh we could benefit from in Canada where, you know, we all know why don't we face it, our, our political parties are pretty thin and to a large degree they're not much more than marketing agencies.
1: <laughs> That's a funny way of, of putting it. I um, I actually want to shift gears for a second and talk for a few minutes about election cycles. Um, Obviously, the Canadian case is different than the American, but in the American case, for example, uh, you know you have, well, in Canada too, you have the four-year election cycle, but it seems as if as soon as a general election is over, you're automatically uh, thinking in terms of midterms or in in terms of the next election. And do you, A, do you think that, the four-year cycle causes somewhat of voter fatigue and people are getting tired of voting every four years? And do you think that somehow translates into the way administrations or governments are kind of operating day- day-to-day?
2: Oh, uh, very, very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've been lucky or unlucky to have uh, had a, a variegated career, which included working at the political end way back uh, in time. And mm-hmm. and I can assure you that that even here, Uh, The morning after an election uh, and you've won, you're immediately thinking or people around you are immediately thinking winning in four years. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And we are uh, hurt by that Mm -hmm. short term thinking because many of the issues that we confront today and always have confronted. Require longer term thinking.
1: Yeah, very much.
2: And so. yeah, very much. And and there are moments historically when you're able to get beyond the two year, four year cycle, mm-hmm. but they're rare. And and even in my time in government, we we we, we did not think long term.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: I worked in a policy function, and it it was not. I, I briefly worked on a project on the future of work and and the need to change the labor market regulatory regime, which yeah. went nowhere uh, because it's like too far out and too many unknowns. And so this kind of very transactional, reactive approach we have mm-hmm. to politics and therefore to the public policy function of politics, which you know comes right out of the political uh, 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 domain, uh, means that we're not. Served well collectively, you know. Today we just had the uh, climate change report table, yeah. which, which you know, they've been talking about that since 1992, <laughs> uh, and here we are. And it's it, it's not not because of the the ICPP, but rather the uh, governments have been unable, unwilling to move on that agenda in a really meaningful way. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're 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 totally correct. It, it, it's it's uh, a real problem and, and yeah. what can be done about it uh I'm not entirely nobody
1: sure. really knows yeah it's it's like Connor said earlier it's really just a trade-off between you know uh things like legitimacy and transparency and also uh on the other side actually progressing policy in a long term fashion yeah. Uh, yeah instead of being stuck in this short-term mindset um, yeah no, look, that,
2: that's very true
1: I'm looking at the the time now I think that pretty much wraps it up for t- for for us today Brian we're about to call on our second guest shortly but I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us on the show it was really nice to hear your thoughts and I hope uh, our beyond the headlines listeners got got some good information out of it
2: yeah thank you very much for inviting me I, I really enjoyed uh, the chat
1: all right thanks so much Brian well uh, we'll see you again later all right take okay. care bye-bye once again, beyond the headlines, that was Dr. Brian Evans, who joined us for a discussion on Canada's democratic institutions and what role they play in determining social outcomes. Thanks for tuning in. Next next up, we're going to have Mr. Rial Laverne talking to us about whether Canada has a democratic deficit. Does Cam- Canada have a democratic deficit? Tune in on the next half and we'll find out. Remember, you can always join us in the conversation by tweeting at Twitter on Twitter at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Check out our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net, or follow us on Instagram, at beyondtheheadlines. For those who just tuned in, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. We're a weekly public affairs radio show that airs Mondays at 11 a.m. on CIUT 89.5. Want to add your voice? You can always send us a tweet at BYOND underscore headlines. If you have any suggestions or feedback for our show, please take a moment to complete our survey at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash feedback.
0: Okay, are we, uh, we're good, we're good to go? Have we are we, good to go. Have we read the introduction for Rael yet?
1: We have not. Rael, are you joining us on the, is Rael here?
4: I'm here, yes, I'm Hello. here. Hello, how good are ahead. you?
1: I'm
4: fine. Could I have your
0: name again? I yes, missed it. This is Maria. Maria. Okay, good. Yeah. And uh, I and, uh, and, and Connor.
1: Uh, and Connor. Connor.
0: So I'm I'm briefly just going to introduce you uh, to our guest Rael. So uh Real is our second guest. He has been engaged in the movement for election reform with Fair Vote Canada since his retirement as a civil servant in 2013 and was past president of the organization from 2016 to 2021. He is now president of the Ottawa chapter. Rael has been involved in every Fair Vote Canada campaign for electoral reform from 2014 onwards. As a former academic and civil servant, Rael spent most of his career in the area of international development as a researcher, academic and senior policy analyst, and he holds a PhD in political economy from the University of Toronto. And he joins us for a conversation about our electoral system and proportional representation. So thanks so much for being with us. How are you? I'm fine. Really happy to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, so I'll, I'll kick it off with, uh, you know, kind of a, a question. And your organization is called Fair Vote Canada. Why do you feel that our current system of voting is unfair?
4: Well, what, what do we mean by fairness when it comes to voting? We're talking about equal rights for citizens and voters, meaning to say that every vote should be equally meaningful and effective, no matter where you live or who you vote for. And, and that's patently not the case under uh, the current system, and you know you can see it every time we have an election. There's this ritual after the election where uh, people look at how the results actually failed to match uh, how people voted, and uh, one can go. So one can go to any election and give examples. But I'd like to give an example from the last Ontario election.
1: Oh, that was um, right. <laughs> what I was going to ask you. <laughs>
4: yeah, that was one of the most egregious yeah. ones, and you had similar, very egregious result in in Quebec. But since we're in Ontario, what was really egregious, there's two things. One was the way that the seat count came out for the Ontario Liberal Party versus the NDP. Mm -hmm. The the Liberals actually got more votes than the NDP in 2022. They got more votes and yet they ended up with eight seats. The NDP ended up with 31. Mm -hmm. That that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, Either party under a proportional system should have won about 30 seats and here's the, the Liberals didn't even get official party status. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the nonsense of that is, is very obvious. And this, the flip side of that is what happened with the, the Conservatives. Conservatives got uh, about 41% of the vote, just under 41%, mm-hmm. but they ended up with over two thirds of all the seats. And... Why that's the flip side is that that's what's called a winner's bonus. The bigger party under a first-past-the-post system typically gets way more than its share of the seats. In this case, uh, 50% bonus. Um, And what happens in our system is we end up with what we call false majorities. And basically, a party, in this case, with 41% of the vote, has basically the power to do what it wants for the next four years. That makes no sense. Mm -hmm. in in a representative democracy, and it's patently unfair. Later on, we'll talk about the fact that it's not just unfair, it actually also leads to bad government. Yeah. That's that's the topic.
1: So when it comes to electoral reform, I mean, the liberals campaigned on this um, in the the last two election cycles, but why do we always see promises about electoral reform but never actually any action?
4: Well, the promises usually come uh, from a party which is down and out at the -hmm. time. Right. If you look Mm -hmm. at the the Liberals in early 2015, remember, they were in third place. And the NDP was the official opposition. Right. Um, So they were looking more seriously at proportional representation or any other system that would treat them better uh, in the future. And that promise came out uh, that 2015 would be the last. (laughs) election under first-past-the-post in Canada, Mm -hmm. and and that promise was repeated over and over again. And so we tend to think, when we think of broken promises today, everybody thinks about the Justin Trudeau broken promise on electoral reform. That's what comes to mind. But the fact is that the failure to get electoral reform in Canada goes back 100 years. Uh, It goes back to William William Lyon Mackenzie King uh, in 1919 and 1926. Um, And then there's a a whole series of efforts in Quebec that start in 1979 with René Lévesque and ended basically last year under uh, Legault. Uh, You've got four different governments that promised electoral reform, twice the Parti Québécois, once the Liberals, and uh, once the CAC. Um, Mm -hmm. And in every case, they backed out on their promise. Now, what's happening here? Uh, is it the leaders themselves? Not necessarily. René Levesque was true to his promise. All the you know, he didn't back down himself as a leader. But they lose their caucus because caucus members that have been elected under first past the post they look okay. Well, if you're going to change the system, what are my chances of getting reelected? And of course, if you change the system, the results are going to be different. Mm-hmm. So some of them see that they would lose their seats. Right. And in every one of those cases, four different cases in Quebec. Three different parties, it was the loss of caucus that led to the failure of, of electoral reform and the broken promises in, in mm-hmm. those cases. And, and that's that's basically the story.
1: Would you say part of the problem is attributed to, you know, the way Canada's federal system is structured itself, as in um, multiple veto points, uh, you know, these federal-provincial relations and... Uh, I, I, if Actually, if you could remind me, um, for something like electoral reform to happen, would it require unanimous consent for across all provinces?
4: No, 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 no. 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 Oh, this would be done by the federal government, and I don't think that's the issue at all. Okay. Um, the, I mean, the proportional representation has been attempted at the provincial level as well, yeah. notably in Quebec, but also in Ontario, British Columbia, Prince Edward Island. Right now they're discussing it in Yukon. So, you know, you can't blame that on federalism. True, the true. issue has to do with the fact that we have basically a two-party system mm-hmm. in terms of the two parties that alternate in power. And, of course, we have the NDP and the Greens and the People's Party of Canada on the side, uh, but they're not normally part of government in Canada. And so you've got that two-party system, and each party wants to have its turn at the top, and therefore they tend to be resistant to electoral reform, and that's the case across the board. So we need to find a way to get beyond that. Um, We we did get electoral reform in Europe uh, in the early 20th century, but that was a different world. It was a period of time when uh, the working class was was winning the suffrage, um, and then later on uh, women as well but mainly it was the working class winning the suffrage, and this completely upset the political balance in those countries uh, to the point that uh, they were looking for solutions, and often proportional representation was a solution. But we in Canada, the UK and the US, the three countries that currently use the post, the big ones um, in, the, in the OECD, uh, we missed the boat at that time, and now the politics are different. So what we need to be looking at today is, okay, we have a political issue in terms of getting first pers- of getting rid of first past the post bringing in a proportional system or electoral reform more generally in any sort of a way um how do we get past that that's that's the big question that uh, that we face we don't have the same history as the uh, european countries
0: mhm so real we're we're talking about proportional representation and just for completeness for our listeners can you can you tell us can you give us a brief overview of what proportional representation is and what your proposed model would look like for Canada.
4: Sure. Uh, I think I'd like to deal with that by getting back to going to the basics. What is it about our system, our current system, that's different? And then what is it fundamentally that has to change if you want it to be proportional? And fundamentally what's particular to our system is what's called single-member districts. We elect Mm -hmm. our delegates, our representatives, one at a time. And what that means is that the bigger parties tend to win most or all of the seats in a particular region or area. Um, leading to what, what I described earlier, this winner's bonus. That is a systematic aspect of our system. And the equivalent of that is that smaller parties always get less than their share. So the problem is the single member district. And the way to resolve that, and it's been done in different ways uh, in Europe um, and elsewhere, Uh, is you have to have what's called multi-member districts. And when I explain proportional representation here in Ottawa, where I live, I always say to people, imagine if we were to take the existing seven ridings in the Ottawa region, whether it's provincial or federal, it's basically the same seven ridings. Take those seven ridings and elect people to those seven ridings together in in one group, a multi-member district, a seven-member district. Then... If, let's say, uh, the Liberals won three-sevenths of the vote, well, they would get three seats. And if the NDP won one-seventh of the vote, uh, they would get one seat, and so on like that. Uh, And you can see under that kind of system that you'd end up with a relatively proportional system, and also that every vote now would actually count. So if you vote Green, you have a chance of electing a Green representative. If you vote NDP, you have a chance of helping an NDP representative to win. So that's the trick, is you have to move away from single-member to multi-member. And there are different ways to do that. Um, Fairbult Canada does not particularly advocate one formula over another. Um, What we're arguing today is that that would be something we would like to hear from the Citizens' Assembly uh, on uh, what citizens themselves would like to see based on the democratic values that they bring to the table.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, there's a number of things I wanna I wanna pick your brain on, but um, perhaps we could we could move on and just talk about what does the research on proportional representation tell us? Because we know we have first past the post right now, like it's it's okay, it's kind of a an equilibrium. And then your your group, uh, uh, Fairview Canada, is proposing proportional representation. But I think for our listeners, it would be useful to hear like. Why? Why this would be a better system? So, what does the research on proportional representation tell us about things like voter engagement, trust in the political process, how this uh, impacts, or is a uh, impacts better outcomes in terms of inequality, that kind of thing?
4: That's a really good question, and I find that when this issue is being discussed in the media there tends to be a lot of ignorance of the fact that 85 over 80% of OECD countries already use proportional representation. So there's, a, there's a huge base uh, of information to draw from, but uh, I, I guess our uh, reporters and analysts in the media, they don't take the time to study that research. I would like to point out, though, for your listeners, that there's a document called A Look at the Evidence. So if you just Google those words, you'll be able to find it. It's favorableable Canada's ongoing review of the research literature the comparative research literature on the uh, on different kinds of systems. We're still there right?
0: Yes we're still here oh, okay.
4: <laughs> there and, and everything's black in front of me okay so uh, so I would I would certainly strongly recommend that the what that does is it it looks at a base of literature that compares results in, Uh, first-past-the-post and majoritarian countries with uh, more proportional countries. And what's really interesting about that, you have two categories of results. One is the nature of the politics in the country, and the other one is the quality of the policies that emerge. And on basically every indicator in both of those categories, what you observe is superior performance on the part of countries with proportional representation. So with regards to the politics, what you find is more women being elected, more minorities. You've got higher voter turnout by quite a substantial degree. Uh, You do have higher trust in uh, political institutions. You've got less partisanship, more consensus-based decision-making. So that's all the quality of the politics. Uh, And then in terms of policy, one of the things that your previous guest was talking about was uh, the, the lack of attention to long-term issues, that mm-hmm. it's all about the election cycle, and I would say in Canada, it's not even about the election cycle, it's about wedge issues, you know, like Chinese interference, that's right. our wedge issue of yeah. today. In 2019, it was the hijab was a big issue, actually probably changed the result of the election. It's these short-term wedge issues Hyperpartisanship partisanship and all that, um, that, that means that the policy agenda on longer-term issues isn't given the attention that it deserves. And what we observe in countries with proportional representation is they pay a lot more attention. So on climate change, it's really the proportional representation countries that lead the pack. On social equality, economic equality, it's proportional representation countries that lead the pack. And strangely enough, you might be surprised, not only do do they do better on equality, they also do better on economic growth, economic stability, and fiscal prudence. So really, it's really right across the board the the research is Mm unambiguous in that regard.
0: Thank you. So
4: it's not just about fairness, it's also about results.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: No, that's an interesting interplay that you, you talked about where proportional representation Countries have more of a Mm long-term policy focus, or their their politicians are incentivized to focus on the longer term. They lead Mm -hmm. on issues like uh, climate change, inequality, whereas in Canada and and other uh, other first-past-the-post countries, it's a very short-term focus. Wedge issues like the um, what were we talking about? The the hijab, the um, Chinese interference, Chinese interference, the gun, uh, you know, the gun registry that wasn't. Yeah, yeah, that's another good example.
4: Yeah, And the reason is that under our system, a small change in voter preferences is what you're after. So if you're in a swing riding, you're looking to swing three or four voters away from one (laughs) of the major parties to the other. Um, And similarly for the election as a whole, you know that if you can get from 33% of the vote to 39%, you go from being opposition to having all the power for the next four years based on those four or five or six percentage points. Whereas in a proportional country, um, if your share of the vote goes up three or four percent, the number of seats you're going to have is going to go up three or four percent as well. And so those parties tend to think much more long term as a result of that.
0: So, so, uh, Rael, I wanted to also pick your brain about other methods of democratic election. We're obviously talking about proportional representation, first past the post, but there are other systems out there like alternative vote, for example, which is sort of a ranked ballot model. How how do you feel about that? Like, Why is your organization proposing uh, proportional representation as opposed to something like alternative vote?
4: Well, we need to go back to the fundamental distinction that I was making earlier. Our current system works on the basis of single-member districts. Proportional representation works on the basis of Mm multi-member districts. So when you're looking at ranked ballots, you can apply those ranked ballots in single-member districts or you can apply it in multi-member districts. And both possibilities exist. Uh, If you do it in a single-member district model, I call that a Band-Aid approach to Mm -hmm. using ranked ballots. It's Mm -hmm. also called the alternative vote, but I think it's more fun to call it a (laughs) Band-Aid approach. If you apply it at a multi-member level, you end up with a system like the one they have in Ireland, for example. They use ranked ballots, but they do it in multi-member districts, and as a result, you get proportional results. So if you only apply it in single-member districts, you retain some of the fundamental problems of first-past-the-post. You're still electing one at a time. You're still going to have probably a, a winner's bonus. In fact, it might even be even larger. And you're liable, as they've done in Australia, which is the only OECD country to use that model, Um, you're liable to end up with a very rigid two-party system in which smaller parties find it almost impossible to win seats. So it it does solve some problems. I'm not going to say that everything's bad about using ranked ballots. I think uh, a a proportional ranked ballot system would be terrific. Um, But the Band-Aid approach uh, is not one that experts recommend when they had the... Um, public consultations under the Special uh, part, uh, special Committee on Electoral Reform in 2016. There were virtually no experts that called for this alternative vote approach that uh, our prime minister favoured at the time. And uh, Justin Trudeau himself said um, he would never propose it because he would be accused of uh, partisan self-interest in calling for, for such a system, and, and he thought it was a political non-starter. <laughs> All
1: right, yeah. Um, I want to shift gears for a second and talk about citizens' assemblies. Um, what's going on with citizens' assemblies? What, uh, where do they fit into this picture here?
4: Well, you know, I was talking earlier about how, in Europe, they brought in proportional representation at the turn of the uh, 20th century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Under very particular political conditions, we missed the boat. And what we need to do, we need to find another way because mm-hmm. what we're seeing is that when we leave it entirely to politicians, uh, I call it the promise and betray model. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've gone through promise and betray too many times. In fact, we've gone through it so many times that I don't think any politicians even want to promise it anymore.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Uh, with the exception, perhaps, of the NDP in Ontario. But by and large, they're very nervous about promising yeah. proportional representation anymore. So what we need to do At this stage is we need for everyone to acknowledge that politicians left to their own devices are in a conflict of interest they're elected under one system and they're being called upon to change that system that is a conflict of interest Mm -hmm. and when I speak to people at the door And any acquaintance about this, they understand this right away. (laughs) C'est pas as we say in French. It's not hard to understand, but we need to acknowledge it explicitly, and our politicians need to acknowledge it explicitly. And when you do that, you have to say, well, okay, what's the alternative? Politicians are still the ones who are going to have to vote in electoral reform. We Mm -hmm. can't do without them. But there is an intermediate step that we could take. And that's to find a way to get citizens' input that is very carefully reasoned, based on the evidence, in consultation with experts, mm-hmm. bringing people in from different kinds of parts and perspectives, but people who don't have a vested interest in the outcome. Let them make their recommendations and commit in advance to, at the very least, take those recommendations very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think if that's done, not just by one party, but at least more than one party. So the Citizens' Assembly would be called by a parliamentary committee, let's say. They would put together the mandate. That gives it a very high level of legitimacy. Then it has to be convened in a way that is independent. Um, It has to be organized by an independent organization, That has been chosen in a multi-party way. You can't have one party leading by itself on this. That would not Mm -hmm. be democratic. The mandate itself has to be broad. If the Citizens' Assembly decides they want the status quo because it's changing, it's just not worth the trouble, they should have the right to say that. If they want to, and here I won't use my Band-Aid terminology anymore, if they want to call for the alternative vote as the best we can actually do right now
3: Mm -hmm. for whatever
4: reason, they should be allowed to do that. They should have that option. And if they want to choose one type of proportional system over another or they want to propose a couple of options, they should be able to do that too. They should also be able to, and this is I'm adding something new here that not many people have mentioned in the past. I think they should have the option also of proposing an incremental approach Mm. because if they come out with some proposal that is ambitious and exciting and all the rest of it, but we can't get the support of the political parties to do it because it's too radical, then maybe it's just not going to happen. So Mm -hmm. it'd be interesting for the Citizens' Assembly itself to think about political feasibility. How do we get this thing through? How do we get it started? And once you've gotten it started, what could you do to make sure that improvements are ongoing over Mm -hmm. time? That's an interesting thing that we observe in countries with proportional representation, is they're often revisiting. It's happening right now in New Zealand, for example. They revisit the system. Uh, Wales is doing it right now as well. Germany is doing it right now. They're looking at their system. They're saying, how can we do better? So once you get started, I think Mm -hmm. it's possible, if you put in a proper process to ensure that it continues getting better, We don't have to go to 100% pure proportional representation in one go if that's politically not
1: feasible. Right. That's interesting. I never thought about it that way in an incremental approach as opposed to kind of a full sweep uh, electoral change. Um, Since we are talking about low voter turnout and all, I wanted to pick your brain and ask you what you think about mandatory voting because I know Australia adopted that. I don't know when, but... They did at some point. Um, mm-hmm. I want to get, get your thoughts on that.
4: Well, you know, and there are some countries of proportional representation that use compulsory voting as well. These are countries mm-hmm. that have like 80% turnout. Mm. Um, for Fair Vote Canada, are, we see the priority as being to give people a reason to vote. Right. Uh, I think that's, that's job one, no matter how you look at this. Yeah. And uh, whether you make it compulsory or not might not matter so much if you actually give them a the reason to vote. You know, I, I'll give my own personal example. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Ottawa-Vanier.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Ottawa-Vanier has gone liberal since the federation. Wow. And I like to tell people, like, if I vote for one of the opposition parties, I might as well not vote. Right. Because they're right. not going to win anyway. We know that ahead of time. Yeah. But you know what's really ironic is that even if I vote Liberal, my vote doesn't count for anything because the Liberals are going to win anyway. Yeah. So why should I vote? <laughs> yeah. You know? And so it's it's not surprising that uh, the voter turnout tends to be a little bit higher in swing riding. hmm It tends to be lowest in safe ridings like Ottawa Vanier right. or some of those ridings in, uh, in Alberta that are, you know, safe conservative seats. So it, the, the fact is that most people... Right now, don't really have a good reason to vote.
3: Yeah.
4: And I've done the calculations. Uh, in the last election, it was about 70%. 70% of voters did not really have a good reason to vote. So that's the first thing to fix. Mm-hmm. And with a proportional system, people will have a reason to vote, you know, unless they're voting for some really small fringe party that has no, not a chance of winning a, a seat. Uh, you know, now if I'm in Ottawa Vanier and I vote liberal, well, sure, we're still going to have a Liberal candidate, but my vote will count somewhere else because mm-hmm. it's a larger district, right? So now, no matter who I vote for, under this example that I gave earlier, uh, my vote's likely to count. I can vote NDP, I can vote Conservative, yeah. I can vote Green, and have a chance that my vote's going to help uh, somebody get
0: elected. No, that, that makes sense. And I like I like uh, your framing of it in that people people should vote because they feel like their vote counts, not because they are being forced to vote under threat of a penalty yeah. of some sort. But, uh, Rail, we're coming up to the last um, kind of minute of our time together. We have to wrap up and get ready for the next show. But, you know, in the last kind of 30 seconds, is there anything uh, that you want to share uh, with our listeners, a final thought about proportional representation and, and your work with Fair Vote Canada?
4: Well, I'd like to encourage people to learn more about citizens' assemblies. They can go on the Fair Vote Canada site, and do a search on Citizens' Assemblies. So they'll find some material that way, or just go online. Uh, I really think it's the way of the future. There's there's a lot happening right now. There's uh, serious discussions in Yukon. In um, there's a private member's bill that's, uh, being, that has been prepared federally. Um, and even in the upcoming uh, federal liberal convention, there's mm-hmm. actually a resolution on the floor. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's starting to get some momentum. Uh, I'd like that to continue.
0: Thank you. Um, thank you. No, that makes sense. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you.
4: My pleasure. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.
1: Thanks. Bye, Rial. Once again, that was Rial Laverne, who joined us for a discussion on Canada's democratic deficits. Thanks for tuning in, listeners, at, for, at Beyond the Headlines. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined today by Dr. Brian Evans from TMU and Rial Laverne from Fair Boat Canada. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss low voter turnout and its relationship to democratic institutions. Today's show was produced by myself, Maria Svetkova, and alongside my co-producer, Connor Fraser. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us whenever you're, wherever you're listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Thanks again, everyone.
0: And we're going to end on a song. This is Ghost by Feifei Dobson. I love Fifi Dobson. Fifi Dobson. Sorry. Oops. (laughs) And we're just getting ready for the next show. It's going to come on in about 30 seconds. Thanks for being with us today and talk to you next week. Bye bye.
2: Next donation to CIUT on me, Clayton Book here, broker with PSR Brokerage. And when you buy, sell, or lease your next property with me, I'll donate 5% to CIUT on your behalf. Find out more at movewithclay.com.
3: From the roots up,
1: CIUT 89.5 FM. Toronto. Toronto.